Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for these, uh, these words that we get to sing and the power of them is found in the fact that they capture in lyrical form what You promise in Your Word. Lord, we know that You are great and greatly to be praised, Lord, because you, You've told us, the prophets have told us, Your apostles have shouted and sung and declared and gave their lives for that message. And Lord, we know that there is coming a day based on the authority of Your Word when from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, incense and pure offering will be made in Your name in every place all over this planet. Lord, we thank You for our church that we can gather together as a family, meeting with You and with one another. Lord, we pray especially for our evangelism team this morning that even now are knocking on doors asking how they might serve and how they might pray for people in our neighborhoods. Lord, I pray that You would go before them and prepare hearts. Lord, that You would convict people of their need and that, Lord, as those folks come knocking on their door, that if a word of encouragement is needed, that they would receive it a word of prayer, that they would receive it, that they would sense that they are loved by You. And Lord, I pray that You would draw folks this morning to Yourself that they might be saved or if they're straying and they're believers, that they might be restored. Lord, we pray especially this morning for our student ministry that's away on retreat. Lord, I pray that decisions would be made on that retreat, that a spiritual stake would be driven in the ground by these students as they do business with You, hearing from Your Word and committing uh, with the help of their brothers and sisters there to follow You in a, in a more submitted and bowed way as Lord of their life. And God, we pray for the sick within this body. Lord, those who, uh, who maybe even have given up hope. Lord, we ask, our prayer is that You would work in their lives in such a way that the doctors would be confounded, that they would know that the only way there is healing is beyond them, but is in Your hands. And Lord, we pray for our city and our nation, Lord, not for a regime change, not for a new president or a new Congress. Uh, Lord, we don't want to place our hope in everything the world places their hope in. Lord, we don't need a new leader. We need revival. Lord, we need You to work in the hearts of those in government and in the hearts of those who aren't to bring them to Yourself. Lord, we pray for ourselves that we would stand firm in the faith, that our conscience would be captive to the Word of God, that we would remember who You are and that we would remember whose we are, that we, Lord, in greater ways this week would appeal to the years of the right hand of the Most High, trusting what You have done in the past that You would do in the future. And now, Lord, as Your Word is taught, Lord, hide me behind the cross. May I be forgotten, but You remembered. Lord, that You would speak to the hearts in this room and that, Lord, lives would be changed because of Your Word by Your Spirit. Through Christ we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, hey, it's good to see y'all. Yeah. I like it when people are actually happy to see me. <laughs> there were three of you. I took note, and uh, you'll be thanked later. So, Well, hey, guys, we are in week two of this sermon series through the book of Daniel. I've titled the series uh, Stand Firm because that's really what this book is all about. Like the book of Daniel covers about... 70 or so years in the life of the author, and it kicks off in 605 B.C. when Daniel and his companions are carried away into captivity. They're ripped 
from the arms of their moms and their dads and taken to Babylon, a new city and a new culture that demands that they assimilate, demands that they conform to the image of like the Babylonian ideal. And so the book of Daniel shows us by example how we can live courageously and confidently as strangers in a strange land. And now we saw last week that the theme of this book is the absolute sovereignty of God in all things. Like we can stand firm because God stands firm. Like we can stand firm because God stands firm. His plans will not be thwarted. Like His his plans and His purposes will be completely accomplished. In fact, as we saw last week, to the very generation being carried away into captivity, God gives them a word of encouragement through the uh, prophet Isaiah. Uh, God says this to them. He says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like Me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all My purpose. He doesn't need your vote. Like God will accomplish all His purpose. And so God tells this generation entering captivity that their standing firm in Him will be directly linked to their holding onto and steering their lives by who He is and trusting in His providence. Like to remember in Scripture isn't simply to be able to like recall to mind. To remember in Scripture is to steer your lives by that truth. And so if you want to stand firm, you have to steer your life by and trust in God's providence. Now John Piper defines the providence of God this way. He says the providence of God is His purposeful sovereignty by which He will be completely successful in the achievement of His ultimate goal for the universe. Like, have you ever thought about that? God, God doesn't grade Himself on a curve. He's not going to be getting a B. He's not hoping for an A. God gets a 100%. Like, His purposes will stand. God's providence carries His plans into action guides all things toward His ultimate goal and leads to the final consummation. See, the sovereignty of God, God is sovereign whether, whether, whether or not there is a creation, but because there is a creation, His sovereignty acts on that creation and it's seen in His providence. And Daniel knew this. Daniel remembered this. In fact, three times just in chapter 1, he highlights God's providence. In verse 2, he says that it was the Lord who gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. It wasn't because Nebuchadnezzar had a greater army. It's because we have a great God and this is what God had purposed. In verse 9, it says that God gave Daniel favor and He gave him compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And then again in verse 17, it says God gave them, meaning Daniel and his companions, learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. In fact, He made Daniel ten times wiser than all the wise men of Babylon. Like Daniel remembered this and he steered his life by it. Because he knew, he knew that Babylon wanted to change his language, change his literature, change his lifestyle, and ultimately change his loyalties. But Daniel's conscience was captive to the Word of God. Like he knew, even as a young man, he knew as a boy that he had to decide before he had to decide. Like growing up, in the royal court with Josiah as king, this righteous young man, he knew even at 8 and 10 and 12 that a test was probably coming, like a test is coming for all of us, and he had to decide right then where he would stand in that test. 
so that when he came, it came, he stood with Yahweh. And so in verse 8 of chapter 1, it says that Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Like he set his heart to obey God because he knew that God stands firm with those who stand firm for him. Like this was his theological conviction. And so in chapter 2, that theological conviction is put to the test. Like in chapter 1, we saw that God had given Daniel like the, an understanding of visions and dreams of all kinds. And in chapter 2, we finally see like the, the absolute incredible value, the pricelessness of that gift. And so in verse 1 of chapter 2, even though I know it says chapter 1, it's actually chapter 2. So don't get uh, confused and like walk out because it's so confusing to you. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Now you got to understand, like in the ancient Near East, dreams were a big deal. Like you didn't just wake up from a dream and say, well, that was weird. Or with this kind of dread or weird feeling and just kind of brush it off. Like dreams were often thought of as omens, portents of the future. And when the king had a dream... His kingdom future was in view. And if he understood that dream, then maybe he could make plans. Maybe he could prepare for it. Maybe he could secure his future. And so in chapter 2, you have Nebuchadnezzar kind of on top of the world. He was about 30 years old in his year of ascension. That doesn't count toward his years as king. In his year of ascension, he defeated Israel. And then when within his first two years as king ruling there in Babylon, he had really established himself and people thought of him as virtually all-powerful. And yet, Nebuchadnezzar had no authority over his dreams. Like we're going to read about this guy, and this guy who was the king of the world, basically, <laughs> is just a sleepless mess. Like he's lost all insight, all wisdom, all restraint. Verse 2, it says, Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. And so they came in and stood before him. Like from Egypt to Babylon, he had gathered the best and the brightest of every nation, of every people. And he thought, surely these guys will have the answer for me. Verse 3, and the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Like we get an idea that maybe the king doesn't even remember the details of his own dream. He has an image in his head, but he has this sense of dread and he doesn't know why. And so verse 4, it says, the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Good start. Always do that with the king, Right? Tell your servants the dream and we will show you the interpretation. Now here's where the story takes a turn that these wise men didn't anticipate because the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. Meaning it's unchanging. It's, it's final. It's set in stone. This is the law. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. I tell me the dream first, then tell me what it means. If not, you will be dismembered and your houses will be turned into a garbage dump. And oh, oh, don't forget, this is my final word. It's set in stone. Now, this may sound a little extreme, but which of us does not get a little bit murdery when we haven't had a good night's sleep, right? <laughs> Amen? Man, I didn't sleep last night. I'm, I'm kind of restless, but I'm not the king, so it would be wrong for me to kill anybody. But if I was the king, watch out. 
Like this guy has all power. Whatever he decides to do, he gets to do. And he's missed a couple of sleepless nights and now he's going to kill all the wise men in Babylon. Like that's how disconnected from reality he is. And so they answered the second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show you its interpretation. But the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. It's final. It's unchanging. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, Tell me the dream and I shall and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. So they say, hey, tell us the dream, O king, and we'll interpret it. But he says, hey, if you're as wise as you claim, you tell me the dream. And then when you give me the interpretation, I will know that it can be trusted, that you have genuine insight because the king knew that these guys were the kings of spin. They could probably spin any dream he told them to sound like he is the greatest thing in the world and is all-powerful and it's all going to be okay. I mean, that's their job, right? I mean, they're not going to give him bad news. I mean, think about the worst dream that most people have growing up. They're sitting in a classroom taking a final exam that they didn't study for. Oh, and by the way, they're naked. Okay? If Nebuchadnezzar had told that dream to them, they would have said, oh, king... This is very good news. What the gods are telling us is that you are so wise and powerful that you can face off any enemy and any challenge completely unarmored and be victorious. And he's like, oh, well, thank you very much. And so he knows these guys. So he says, no, you tell me first or it's going to get really bad for you. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the, meet the king's uh, demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Nebuchadnezzar, king, live forever, but you're asking too much. Like we're men, we're not gods. Here you see the utter futility of paganism. The utter, utter futility and limitation of mere religion. Like what are we supposed to tell you? O king, God doesn't dwell with us. And yet, if you can remember, there was a people whose God ju did just that. In verse 12, because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. This is unchangeable. This is going to happen. This is firm. It's the way it's going to be. He's not just angry. It says he's angry and very furious. Like you, you get a picture of a guy who is robbed of sleep, dark circles under his eyes. He can't take it anymore. I'm just going to kill everybody and start over. I mean, by this point, the king had lost all sense of judgment. He is extreme and harsh, but his commands are still going to be followed without question. Verse 13, so the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. What? Well, guys... Daniel is a wise man. He may not have stood before the king yet, but now from this passage, he's guilty by association. Because of his title, his title equals his judgment. Oh, you're a wise man? All right. You're going to die. And then verse 14, it says, but Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard. Now, we've seen this before too in chapter 1 and how he responded and answered the, uh, the chief of all the eunuchs. Like Daniel probably is about 18 years at this point. He's just been elevated to this role on the council of the wise men. 
And we see this pattern in his life because Daniel is a man of wisdom. And he knows what you know if you read your Bible this morning, if you're following in the renewed mind plan. In chapter 15 of Proverbs, verse 1, it says that a gentle answer turns away wrath. And he comes with a gentle answer. And it said that this Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. So he shows up at Daniel's door, knocks on the door, has a sword in his hand, is ready to kill him. But Daniel declares to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time when he might show the interpretation to the king. Guys, this is incredibly bold. Once again, remember, he's just a kid. He's just a teenager. He's probably 18 years old. He goes into the king without being called. He's at great risk because he goes to the king before he has an answer before he knows what the dream was or its interpretation. So what do you do when you're backed into a corner? Like Daniel was at the top of his game at this moment, like he had been appointed like in this great position, and yet now everything falls apart. So what do you do when everything falls apart? What should you do? Verse 17, it says, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. Daniel was told by the king, okay, come back tomorrow morning, first thing, and you better have an answer. So he goes to his companions who live with him, and it says he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So what did Daniel and his companions do? They prayed. That's what they did. Now understand, Daniel has the same options that we have. In fact, he probably has more options than we have. Like he could have resorted to his intelligence. He's ten times wiser than all the leaders in Babylon. He could have resorted to his power, to his resources, but instead he turns to his God. And he chose to pray as his very first response, not as his last resort. Like when everything fell apart, Daniel fell to his knees. And that's what we should do. Like when everything falls apart, Fall to your knees. That is the right response. We saw that just in the past week or so with Damar Hamlin. Like You saw people on national TV on a football field gather from two different teams and pray. Like That was the right response, whether it's short-lived or not by all of those people. It was the right response because at that moment, they knew that there were times when we have reached our limits. And so they gathered and they prayed. Like is prayer your first response? Or do you try everything else first? Reach into your bag of tricks. Try everything you can. And if that doesn't work, prayer is your last resort. You see, one of the great principles of prayer from this passage is that we need to confess our need early. Like this is not... Well, you know what, guys? Hey, we're marked for death. This is going to be bad. So I guess we might as well pray, right? No. This is, hey guys, it seems like we're all marked for death. So let's see what God will do. Remember last time? I mean, it was just three years ago. Like we were being forced to conform. We were told to change even our diet. And we took a stand and said no. And God showed up. Let's see what God will do now. Like we're marked for death. Let's pray and watch the right hand of the Most High come to our defense. Like Daniel was calm and confident. He wasn't self-confident. He wasn't self-reliant. He was trusting in God alone. Like prayer is an acknowledgement of our limitations. It's a confession of our weakness. I love how one commentator captures the heart of Daniel's prayer with these words. This is the kind of Daniel prayer that we should be praying. Father, apart from You, my plans mean nothing. On my own, Lord, I can't fix this. 
I can't heal the wound, correct the fault, clean up the mess, or put my life back together without You. God, You must take control if any good is going to come from this. Use me if You will, but You must act. Otherwise, my power, my intellect, and my connections will count for nothing. Only You, Lord, are truly able. I depend on You. See, that was Daniel's prayer. In fact, note, he didn't just pray. He gathered the faithful to pray. Do you do that? Like when something happens, you, your job's on the line. Your, your health is at risk. Your marriage is troubled or messed up or you have a child who's walking away from the faith. Do you humble yourself and go to God in prayer? And do you humble yourself and go to your brothers and sisters in Christ and say, please pray for me. Please pray with me about this situation. Like we should do the same thing if we believe that prayer, like prayer really matters. And it's what God wants us to do. Like prayer is a confession that we cannot provide the thing that we need the most. It's an acknowledgement of our utter dependence on God. And Daniel teaches us that it's never a wrong time to pray. Never is it a wrong time to pray. Any time is the right time to pray. And so when everything fell apart, Daniel fell to his needs. Like now some may ask, especially with the theme of the book of Daniel, okay, wait a minute, if God is absolutely sovereign, right? If He has decided everything He's going to do, then why should we pray? I mean, if God is sovereign over all things, why do I need to pray at all? Like, I mean, God's going to do it anyway. I, need, I just need to kick back and watch what God's going to do. Like, I don't need to engage myself. I don't need to enter into the story. I certainly don't need to pray for something that God's going to do anyway, not understanding that God not only ordains what will happen, but God also ordains the means by which He makes it happen. I love how uh, Sam Storm puts it. He says, we must never presume God will grant us apart from prayer, what He has ordained to grant us only by means of prayer. See, guys, Daniel believed in the absolute sovereignty of God more than any one of you in here. More than me. Like, he was convinced by it. He based his life on it. He saw the work of God. And yet, he prayed. Like he prayed. Like to say you don't need to pray because God has determined the outcomes is like saying you don't need to take medicine or get out of bed or try to get a job because God has already determined the outcomes. I mean, it may be true that God has determined all of the outcomes, but God has also determined the means by which those outcomes will take place. John Piper explains it this way. He says, God does not intend for us to see ourselves or any part of the world as cogs in the wheels of an impersonal mechanism. This world is not a machine that God made to run on its own. It is a painting or a sculpture or a drama. You see, we have a God who is sovereign over all of our failures. We have a God who is sovereign over all the mistakes and the missteps that we might take. We have a God who in eternity can bring everything into our presence to see how He took the good and the bad and turned it for our good and for His glory in some mysterious way that I don't think even in heaven we'll be able to grasp because it is beyond us. His ways are not our ways and His thoughts are are not our thoughts. In fact, as far as the heavens are above the earth, so His ways are above our ways and His thoughts, our thoughts. Like You may say, well, God's going to do what He's going to do. Yes, but what if God has ordained that you be part of what He is doing? And what's going to happen? Piper continues, a nail sinks into a board. Because God planned for a hammer to hit it. A student makes an A on a test because God planned for the student to study. 
A jet flies from New York to Los Angeles because God planned for the fuel to be available, wings to stay put, engines to thrust, and a pilot to know what he was doing. In none of these cases do we say that the cause was pointless. The hammer, the steadying, the fuel, the wing, the engine, the pilot. Neither is prayer pointless. It is part of God's plan. And so, if your understanding, hear this, if your understanding of the sovereignty of God leads you to pray less, then you need to rethink your understanding of the sovereignty of God. Like you may find yourself in a situation like in the Prince's Bride where that word that you keep saying, I don't think that word means what you think it means. Like the fact that God is sovereign doesn't mean that we don't have responsibility and He doesn't want us engaged in what He is doing. He ordains the outcomes and He ordains the means. And so Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego pray. And in verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. So what does Daniel do when he's faced with a crisis where he's got a sword dangling over his head? Well, he prays and then he goes to bed. And then he wakes up and he worships. Like Daniel went to sleep. It says, and then it was in his sleep that when the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, like he, his life was at stake and he stays calm. He simply prays and he closes his eyes. I mean, do you see the contrast between these two people? The main characters of this chapter, you have Nebuchadnezzar, the man who rules the entire world, is sleepless. And Daniel, the man marked for death, is sleeping. One's restless and one is resting. Like Daniel prayed, he placed this situation solely in God's hand and then he did what Nebuchadnezzar could not do. He got a good night's rest. You know, Psalm 127 verse 2 says that God gives sleep to the one that He loves. Psalm 4, verse 8 says, In peace I will lie down and sleep, for You alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. Psalm 16, verse 7 and 8 says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Guys, Daniel knew that. And he went to sleep, and when he woke up after receiving God's counsel in the night, he worships. And like this is, these next couple of verses are the theological center of the chapter, and in these verses it covers all the themes of the book of Daniel. In verse 20, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. Remember the accusation by Nebuchadnezzar to his charlatan wise men? You're just trying to change the times? They can't. Only God can. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings. And He sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have no understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. And I love this next part. He knows what is in the darkness. And the light dwells with Him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might. You have made known to me what we ask for. You have made, you have made known to us the king's matter. And so he gets up. He rejoices with his friends. They praise God together. You have made known to us the king's matter. And then he is brought before Nebuchadnezzar. I wish I could see this. Right? Daniel, who is about 18 years old, without a care in the world, marked for death, comes before the ruler of the world, who had another sleepless night, most likely, and is sitting there on his throne with dark circles under his eyes, irritated as can be. And he asked Daniel this question. 
Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? There's only one right answer for that, right? The sword's hanging over his head. Like the captain of the guards right there beside him. Like, are you able to tell me the dream and its interpretation? But Daniel answered the king and said, no. No wise man, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. You ought to underline that in your Bible. Nobody can fix this. Nobody can make anything good come out of this. Nobody can heal this. Nobody can change what's already happened. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and He has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. And then he tells him his dream. And he tells him the interpretation. And in this dream and in this interpretation, God reveals both the scope and the hope of all of human history. I mean, sitting there in 603, 602 B.C., this vision that Nebuchadnezzar has had just unfolds history for the next eons of time. Like he sees in this dream a image. He calls it a great image. Here's a kind of a rendition of it. He sees this great image that for some reason has this sense of dread that falls on him. There's a sense of terror because of this great image that Daniel says means it portrays five kingdoms. The first is uh, the head. The head is Nebuchadnezzar. The head is Babylon made of gold. It's this rich and powerful kingdom that one day is destined to fall. After Nebuchadnezzar's death, it will fall to the Medes and the Persians represented by the silver torso there, the arms and the torso. Not as rich, not as powerful, but able to bring Babylon down. And one day it will fall. It'll fall to the bronze skirt there, to Greece. The world power that defeats Persia, that culture spreads throughout the world, but is one day itself brought low by the iron legs of Rome that crush everything in their sight. And finally, you have feet mixed with clay and iron representing some confederacy of nations following the Roman Empire. Like these are five kingdoms that are destined for the ash heap of history. These are five kingdoms that basically all they are is dust in the wind. In fact, he says in verse 34, as you looked in your dream, a stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. And so he maps out what I just told you about the coming kingdoms one after another. And then he says in verse 44, and in the days of those kings, like the last confederation of nations, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron and the bronze and the clay and the silver and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. This dream is certain and its interpretation sure. 
Like that's what's going to happen. Like God has revealed to you the future of humanity and the only hope to come in this great kingdom of which there will be no end. And so what happens then? Nebuchadnezzar bows before this young man and offers him honor and exalts him to a high position, making him the prime minister of Babylon and making his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they get jobs with him as governors. Like what happens is God changes the unchangeable. It's set in stone. You're going to die. All the wise men are going to die. No, God changes the unchangeable. And yet you need to understand that Daniel didn't wait for an answer from the king to trust that God would deliver him. Like Daniel didn't wait and place his faith in an earthly king. He rested his faith in the sovereign ruler of the universe. Because faith is being able to praise God for the deliverance you have yet to experience. I mean, what did he do? He prayed with his friends. We don't know for how long. But he prayed with his friends and he went to sleep. And then God gave him counsel in his sleep. And he woke and he worshiped and he went boldly before the king and gave all the honor to God. No man could give you an answer. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Like he rested on the track record of God. God had proved himself in the past. And he was trusting that for the present. I, I, I love Psalm 77. In Psalm 77, the, the psalmist tells about how bad things are going for him. And his response to how bad things are going is this. He says, but this is what I will do. I will appeal to this. To the years of the right hand of the Most High. What does that mean? It means that he looks back and he sees the hand of God on his life and on the life of, his, of God's people. And he sees the faithfulness of God. The covenant love of God. And even though he doesn't see it at that moment, he trusts the years of the right hand of the Most High. Because he knows God's track record. And so here's my question. Should our faith be less than Daniel's? I mean, you have right now in your laps or in your hand the complete Word of God. Daniel only had just a little bit. Like we know how the story ends. We know all the details because we have that. Like God has a much greater track record 2,600 years later than He did then. Like do we have less to remember about God's faithfulness? Do we have less of the years of the right hand of the Most High to appeal to? I mean, after all, unlike Daniel, we know the name. Like, we know the name of the stone that is cut out by no human hand. Like, we know what that stone is, what it represents, who it is. Like in Luke chapter 20, at the climax of a parable about the rejection of the Messiah, Jesus turns to the religious leaders of the day and He says this, then what is the meaning of this Scripture? He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. Like Jesus in the midst of this parable is talking about Himself and here in this illustration from Scripture referring back to Daniel chapter 2. He is saying, I am that stone. Guys, like there's no middle ground with Jesus. Like there's no neutral stance you can take with Jesus. You cannot be Switzerland. There is no Switzerland. You either have to decide to bow before Him as King or when He comes, you will be crushed by Him and His kingdom. That's just the way it is. Jesus has a grave for every empire, for every emperor. And the only true security is in the kingdom of God's one and only Son. Let's pray. Lord Jesus,
I am blind. Be my light. Ignorant. Be my wisdom. Self-willed. Be my mind. Open my ear to grasp how quickly your Spirit's voice and delightfully run after His beckoning hand. Melt my conscience so that no hardness remain. Make it sensitive to evil's slightest touch. When Satan approaches me, may I flee to your wounds and there cease to tremble at all alarms. Be my good shepherd to lead me into the green pastures of your word and cause me to lie down beside the rivers of its comforts. Fill me with peace that no disquieting worldly gales may ruffle the calm surface of my soul. Your cross was raised to be my refuge. Your blood streamed forth to wash me clean. Your death occurred to give me a guarantee your name is my foundation to save me. By You all heaven is poured into my heart, but it is too narrow to comprehend Your love. I was a stranger, an outcast, a slave, a rebel, but Your cross has brought me near, has made me Your Father's child, has admitted me into Your family, has made me a joint heir with You. Oh, that I may love You as You love me, that I may walk worthy of You, my Lord, that I may reflect the image of heaven's firstborn. May I always see Your beauty with the clear eye of faith and feel the power of Your Spirit in my heart. For unless He move mightily in me, no inward fire will be kindled. Well, Jesus, we thank You for the memories that this table bring back to us. Memories of experience of communion. Memories of retreats. Maybe memories of our first time at this table as a believer. But Lord, the greatest memory of all is this table reminds us that there was a cross, that there was a body nailed to it, that there was blood that poured out from it, and that this table preaches of that cross. But Lord, it also preaches of a kingdom that is to come. And in fact, every time we come to this table, we are proclaiming the death of Christ until He comes. So come quickly, Lord Jesus. Pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's stand together as the band plays. I'd invite you to come. Get your elements of communion. Take them back to your seat and we will take them together as a church. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us break the chains and throw off the shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in His anger and terrifies them in His wrath, saying, I have installed my King on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my Son. Today I have become your Father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate His rule with trembling. Kiss His Son or He will be angry and you will be led to your destruction. For His wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. All that anger, all that righteous deserving anger poured out on sin was instead poured out on Jesus. 
God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So for those of us who have fled to Him as our refuge, this is His body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Him. And for all of you who see in Christ your stronghold, your strong tower, this is His blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of Him. Let's worship together. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar saw a vision of a great stone coming down that crushed the nations to powder. That's the future, but it doesn't have to be your future. It didn't even have to be King Nebuchadnezzar's future. He had an opportunity just like we have of who we will bow to, who we will align with. Will we bow our knee to the Lamb of God? Or will we flee from Him? There's lots of uh, parts of the book of Daniel that's going to remind you as we get further into it of the book of Revelation. They have so much in common, especially the last six chapters of Daniel. But we're told in the book of Revelation that there's going to come a day when people will flee to caves and pray for mountains to fall on them because they are terrified by the wrath of the Lamb. I don't know about you, I've never seen a Lamb I was really afraid of. Right? But this is no ordinary Lamb. This is the stone that Daniel saw. This is the King, the Ruler, the Lord of Lords. The One that even Nebuchadnezzar had to acknowledge. And if you will simply bow your knee to Him and confess that He is Lord and put your trust in Him as Savior, you can be rescued and flee to Him for safety. I hope you do that today if you haven't already done it. Our elders are going to be down front. would love to talk to you and help you make that decision. Pray with you or for you. Uh, Our new elders, uh, most of who are in town, will be down here as well. Uh, we uh, We elected three last week. Uh, Greg Stanton, uh, Ryan Fouch returning to the board, and Jason Hatton. So thank you all. I hope you all have a wonderful week. God bless you, church.